Welcome to the Televerse, the podcast just for TV. Because it's great, we're lucky they make so many fine programs to see. Your hustle and Kate like to debate the merits of all that they've seen. Comedy, genre, reality, drama, and anything that's in between. Welcome to the Televerse, less of the show. Hello and welcome to the Televerse. This is Kate Kulzig, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick and... I'm not going to ask how's it, how's it going, Noel, because this week sucks. So instead, I will say, uh, while I have been trying to not be angry about things I can't change right now, uh, I am I am grateful that we are doing a special segment this week um, because Adam Schlesinger, one of the creative um, and musical forces behind Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, uh, passed away this week at age 52 from complications from coronavirus. And there are many ways in which that sentence is infuriating to me. Um, but the part that I like is that we are doing a tribute to him. And the part I, I, I like even more is that we have friend of the show, Alison Shoemaker, joining us for that conversation. And that that is coming at the end of the show. Yeah, it's it's been rough. But that taking that time to talk about Schlesinger's work across like multiple um, venues, basically, I think uh, was really good so i i know i sort of needed it so i was glad that we carved out the time for that and i'm glad allison was available but also we're all available right now <laughs> <laughs> yeah there is that there is that well we're going to be listening to Schlesinger's music throughout the the podcast today um and uh yeah it it was a lovely conversation that's coming at the end of the show we are also doing a spotlight um, just the two of us on Steven Universe Future, which wrapped up its its, I guess double like season its its run, um, this past its existence, week. yeah, uh, with a highly emotional um, uh, four episodes, and yeah, thank goodness that was last Friday because <laughs> yeah, it's been an emotional week. Uh, so we have lots of thoughts on Steven Universe Future as well. Um, that's going to be its own its own segment. I'm not like I'm both ready and not ready for Steven Universe to be over, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, I imagine at some point I'll rewatch it. But right now, I think it's too like there's too much in the world right now. Yes, <laughs> so I'm not up for for rewatching all of Steven Universe yet. But one day I will be, and that will be a nice day. So uh, that that talk is coming also. Not immediately, but not at the end. In the middle of the podcast today, we have uh, we we heard some from some some of you guys this week on on Twitter. In particular, it's been super fun on streaming a place we kind of have like a, a set of regulars who've been hanging out with us, and uh-huh. it's been absolutely delightful. Of course, uh, Allison is doing streaming a place with us as we watch Lucifer, but we've we've got Marcus and Lurker and Tanya and Scotty and we've, and SB has come a few times. Like we've got a, like a group that that leave their thoughts and, and hang out with us. And uh, thank you guys. They've been super fun. It has been. It's, it's been sort of one of the things that's keeping me going. Mm-hmm. Um, I need the structure sort of um, since I'm underemployed and doing streaming in places given my weak uh, structure, which has been really, really helpful for me personally. So I really, I'm very glad that you have the idea to do this because Otherwise, I think I would just never leave the couch and I would just I would be done with Kingdom Hearts three by now, Kate, if it wasn't for (laughs) streaming in place. And that's an 80 hour game. Um, But I've also done 42 hours of it since I've been on lockdown in 17 days. 
So yeah. Also not great. <laughs> yeah. Well, an 80 hour game is a different beast entirely when, when you are at shelter and home, shelter in place, uh, and or quarantine and or lockdown. So like yeah. you're, you're, you're fine. I've got some friends who are starting up new weekly, um, and maybe even more than weekly D and D games. And yeah. like yeah. now is the time if you are underemployed, if you are, if you are, uh, on furlough or, or if, if you've been laid off, uh, hopefully temporarily while all this is going on, then take, seize the moment and, and develop a new <laughs> dangerous connection to, to time consuming video games. Uh, or in my case, the, you know, I spent a shocking percentage of my college years, um, playing board games and, and D and D, um, which was, very wonderful at the time and uh, you know if if you have the time i highly recommend it um so well, now i'm just like i feel like you and i need to start a game i don't game. okay so i don't have the time uh, because no you do though no you i do. really really don't <laughs> but we have a we have quite a few shows to talk about this week in tv so we're going to head into a full week in tv first and then spotlight on Steven Universe Future and then our tribute with Allison to Adam Schlesinger. So we will take a break and listen to some delightful music and be right back after this. Well, he looks at me with those innocent eyes and says it looks like you're wearing some kind of disguise because your hair stays up, your shoes are That was Pretend to be Nice uh, from Josie and the Pussycats, uh, written by Anne Schlesinger. And this week in TV, we are talking about uh, a few shows. We've got uh, Keep Your Hands Off Izuken, uh, season one, which just wrapped up, as well as Chihaya Furu, season three, which also wrapped up. So I'm looking forward to your thoughts on both, Noel. And then we're going to talk Miracle Workers Dark Ages, which had its finale, Moving Out, part two. Then we're going to do a roundup of a bunch of other shows that aired this week that were fun, uh, that we don't have a lot to say about. But it was a good week for comedy this week. There were a lot of solid yes. episodes. So we're just going to kind of do a, a back and forth about some of the, those shows. I'm going to list them all because there's too many. Before we move on to Castlevania Season 3, which dropped, and Noel has his thoughts there, and we'll run things out with Top Chef All-Stars LA, Strokes of Genius, and RuPaul's Drag Race Season 12, uh, Gay's Anatomy. So first up is Keep Your Hands Off Izuken, and they've now finished Season 1, and I know this is one of the one of the animes you were most excited about this season. How did this one pay out? Okay, this is... Easily one of the best shows I've watched this year so far. Um, which isn't saying like a lot, a lot, because I feel like the year's still young, despite the fact that it doesn't feel like it. Um, <laughs> despite the fact that it's a, like we're all ancient now. Yeah. Right. But also the fact that who knows how much TV we're about to like start to get. Um, so I talked about this a little bit when it first started like 
uh, 13 weeks ago, uh, 12, 13 weeks ago. And to refresh you, this is about three high school girls who start a club to make anime. And they do like a, they want to make anime. Um, and so this is based on a manga series that has thankfully been licensed. Um, and we'll start getting an English translation this year. And I'm very excited about that. But this is one of the most beautiful, really great shows about the powers of creativity Um, and what that does for us as human beings, what this does for us as like interpersonal relationships um, and just the ways in which we get inspired by things and then how we put those in that inspiration out into the world. And in a time in which we're all kind of trying to figure out what all that is, I think that there's no better time to sort of watch this show. Um, it's on Crunchyroll. It's subtitled, but who cares? Um, and you can watch it all for free now, as long as you're willing to sit through some ads at this point um, on Crunchyroll. And I encourage you to do that. It's just so warm. It's so sweet. It's not the last thing that we're going to get from director Masaka Yusa, who directed like the Food Web episode of Adventure Time. Um, and has directed a number of anime anime films that are all really, really great. Because um, he announced this week that he's retiring um, for an extended period of time because he's been working basically nonstop for almost a decade and he's very, very tired. Um, but he's got a couple of like movies coming out as well um, this year. But I really encourage folks to seek this out. It's really funny. It's really sweet. Even if you don't know anything about anime even though this references anime quite a bit, it is such a beautiful exploration of creativity, of also animation in general. Like, if you love animation, then you should be watching this show. Um, the only other thing I'll say that I found really moving about this is that in these kinds of behind-the-scenes making-of production-geared type of programs or films, the producer character is always borderline terrible because they don't understand the art (laughs) and all this sort of stuff. They just care about the money. And there's a producer character, Kanamori, in Aizoken. And I... Kanamori is just one of my favorite new characters of the year. She's just so amazing in that her drive for profitability, for making money, is grounded in very specific human things. It's not about the money. And it's about sort of what that money can do for people. And the episode that's about her backstory is just so good and delightful, but also the fact that she acknowledges that she doesn't quite understand the degrees that the creativity just can you do it because we need to do this because we need to make a profit off our DVD sales. Um, I think it's just really the way that they find that balance, I think is so beautiful and so perfect and so refreshing for that character type that all the more reason that you should watch this show. Um, So yeah, just go seek it out. It's really great. It's really lovely. And I just, I was so sad that it's done. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because it finished up last, last, uh, like a week or two ago. So just go seek it out. It's very, very good. It's very lovely. And I really, I really think everyone should watch it. Okay, noted. I'm very happy to hear that it has paid off on its promise. 
because I yeah. know last uh, was the previous season or maybe just last year there were a few that were interesting and then that ultimately fizzled. So that is yeah. that's exciting. That was hear. this season was like I was started to like a bunch of shows and I basically only kept up with Izokin and, and Chihaya because um, everything else just kind of slid by me this mm-hmm. this season. Well, that takes us to our next show, which is Chihaya Furu. So how was season three? Season three was really weird um, in that our like main characters that we have known and grown with for across two seasons were largely sidelined this season. So all the all the kids from the club barely in it. Um, Chihaya, Taichi and Arata are very central to this season, but because you can't keep doing they go to the high school tournament they compete in the team tournament you can't do that again um you can and you will but you can't do it again right after doing it for two seasons so this season really focuses a lot on the drive for the queen masters um level of play like the top tier nationally televised except this season it gets streamed on the web much to the consternation of a number of people um and what that drive and what that dedication requires and i think that the big thing about this season that gets illustrated by focusing on like dr harada tai chi and chihaya's mentor who's often dramatized as a bear um and his drive to beat the master master suo um at the national level is like what are the costs of being dedicated to something and so this season really explores those concepts i think really really beautifully as the tug of well what else do i want or what do i want from life and what does that mean and that comes to a head in two points in the season halfway through Arta confesses that he's in love with Chihaya. And that just causes like a big spiral of things. Um, and then at the end of the season, Tai Chi's like, yeah, no, I'm in love with you too. <laughs> and the, the scene in which he confesses that is on the stage with very little audio, actually. You see his mouth moving and he's just listing all these things that he loves about her. And we get them like a little bit later, um, like from her recollection. That's just really, really gorgeous. But it becomes a, I need a commitment from you sort of Chihaya, if I'm going to keep doing this. Because one of the big things about like the show is that like he plays Karata to connect to her. And I think that there's this big moment in which she finds out that he has quit the team I quit the club and he goes, she goes running after him and they have this tearful sort of like confrontation at the train tracks that mirrors a tearful conversation that they had in the first run of episodes back when they were little kids. And he says like, do you think I'm made of stone in terms of like him, her begging him to come back to the club and all this stuff. And it's just like, I can't do it anymore. I don't have the day. I can't dedicate myself to this anymore. I can't dedicate myself to you anymore without more from you. And weirdly, as sort of weirdly frustrating as this season could be in terms of like a lot of the characters kind of being benched, the way that everything snapped into focus, I think worked really, really, really well. And so 
Well, I don't think it's like a banger season of Chihaya. I think it's a really thoughtful season of what are you willing to give up to do this one thing? And so it's really, really good. Um, it doesn't work without having watched the other <laughs> two seasons. Um, so it's not a jump in season, but it's a really, it's a really deep, powerful season, I think, on a much quieter level um, that I really, really enjoyed. Ultimately, really, really enjoyed. And also the first two seasons are fun and good, and you can just watch those too. Yeah, and you should, because they're great. Um, yeah. But this is not the season to jump in on. And also considering this is like a miracle season of we didn't think we were going to get up to season three <laughs> because no one bought or paid enough attention to the second season so that we got this season at all. I think it's really, really great. And I will definitely be buying the Blu-rays for season three. So hopefully we get a fourth season. <laughs> Fingers crossed. I can't, I can't let the show end like this. <laughs> I mean, I yeah. can read the manga, but I can't let, I can't let the show end like this, Kate. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, speaking of the show ending like this, we have Miracle yeah. Workers Dark Ages, which had its finale moving out part two, and if they even get renewed, which I think we, you know, it's a bit of a question mark, um, then I would assume that if there, that a new season would be set in a new setting with new characters and everything like that. And it's, this is certainly structured for that eventuality. Um, how did Dark Ages end up working for you overall? Did like the, you know, how, how does this season compare with the first season for you? And um, ultimately, the, I mean, because this was, I think, quite a, an experiment um, for the show. Did it pay off? What did you think? I really do think it paid off. Um, I think that this season was really, really funny in a lot of different ways. From the real weirdness of the fact that Daniel Radcliffe's character wears a wig in the castle, but then takes the wig off to go be among the commoners, even though taking the wig off makes him Daniel Radcliffe handsome, which doesn't make any sense among the commoners. Um, to just the fact of you got Safinowitz to just be any levels of really bonkers great here as a psych psychopathic king. Um, to just the weirdness of transporting a bunch of contemporary ideas and concepts into the middle ages, like the nun, the, the convent as a startup for want of a better term. And that children's crusade I came up with turned out to be like a big hit. It's just like, Oh, that's so dark and so funny <laughs> um, that I think that it just really worked really, really well for me. It was really, really funny. Um, and I think that the other big thing that happened this season was, and I think we mentioned this when we talked about it a little bit at the start was unlike last season where things didn't quite work on a casting level, I think that the casting switches here, most notably the fact of Buscemi not being God and not being in a role that was written for another actor, really specifically, it feels like, uh, based on just first season Miracle Workers, having him be the dad, but not, not be the king, um, was just really, really smart from you actually use Steve Buscemi correctly this time as opposed to last season where that was a part that was very clearly written for Luke Wilson and they didn't change anything <laughs> and it felt really weird um so I think that this season was just better better 
arrangement of their ensemble, even if we didn't quite get enough of certain actors. Um, but it was still really, really funny. It was really sharp. Um, and I really want a third season because I think that this ensemble works really well together. And I just, I want to know what time period it goes into next. Uh, because I think that they've found a really good mode when they just do this kind of silly light satire of contemporary society through a different historical period. And I think if you can just keep doing that, it works really, really well. I just would ask if they do get a third season to not end or take place with plague jokes because it was just really, (laughs) it's not their fault. Yeah. It was just a little rough, Um, but that is not their fault. So that's how I felt about it. I thought this was just a huge step, step up from the previous season. Look out for it when show makes a leap at the end of the year. Um, because this is the one that did it. Um, how did you feel about the second season of Miracle Workers, Kate? Because I've been talking for so long and I don't <laughs> yeah. want to talk anymore. <laughs> um, yeah, I liked it quite a bit. Uh, I think you liked it more than I did. I, for me, it was sort of like, yeah, this is fine. This is fun. I'm enjoying this. But like, I could see how it easily could have slipped off my radar if it wasn't on our, our rundown every week. Um, or I could have gotten behind and then like binged it to catch back up. And uh I do, you know, if it gets renewed for season three, I'll be happy for it. I am calling it right now. What I would like is Miracle Workers in space. So, like, let's have oh, Miracle Workers that's a good idea, too. In space. I'm very here for that. Because uh, they've done, now they've done, like, sort of present day, but with the heaven thing in yeah. season one. And they've done the, the past, so now let's do the future. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I just really enjoy Daniel Radcliffe. Like, his, his energy yeah. is very very watchable and he's just see he he's he's a tv star if he wants to be that um he's also a movie star if he wants to be that but um but the kind of he's also he's... a lego master if he wants to be that well no <laughs> More on his that partner in a is yeah <laughs> uh, but um but but also Geraldine Viswanathan who I'm excited she's in that new um Alison Janney and Hugh Jackman series hbo movie hbo thing yeah um she's she's super fun and they work very well as the the sort of the core for this but like like the gag that Basemi is like 35 or 38 or something no i think he was in his 20s well because she is she's got to be an adult and so therefore he can't be in his 20s if she's like yeah i guess that's fair no but he was in his 30s yeah yeah yeah, which is just so fun and such a, a lovely thing. I liked the the guest cast they brought in um, for for episodes here and there. Uh, I mean, you know, I was cracking up when they're going back to the castle and they stop off for the oracle, and he's got to bring his harp because every day he doesn't practice, he gets worse. Um, <laughs> he starts to lose it, and the number of times I have told my students that because it's true, <laughs> it's like a day off isn't just a day off; it's a day moving backwards, and you can do that for a couple days before it really hits, but by the time you get to a week <laughs> you're fun. um the uh so, so yes there was there was so much um charm and fun in this um it's yeah it, it's 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 a lot it's it's a good partner for for example gallivant anybody who likes gallivant um this but without the songs um there there's just it's a very good energy to this 
to this cast and to the creative team. So I look forward to whatever Semi Rich is up to next. Um, obviously, I was a big uh, fan of Man Seeking Woman, and I look, you know, if he's interested in it, I'm probably interested in checking it out, certainly with this ensemble. So, yeah. Yeah, I liked it. Um, now let's move to our comedy roundup, which is a bunch of things. But let's I'm just going to lift off list off a few here. So let's start with our late night update. We had last week tonight with John Oliver. Uh I was watching uh, a bunch of late night with Seth Meyers and um uh the all late show <laughs> with Stephen not the but all late show with Stephen Colbert and then we had another strong full frontal with Samantha B this week. Uh what stood out for you from from all of that? Right. So, um, one of the things that stand out is standing out is that still some of these shows, not necessarily up to YouTube star levels of production <laughs> yet, which yeah. I find just delightful. Um, just like you're both still sort of not good at this, but it also speaks to how just kind of uncomfortable they are as well with it because they come from a different, very different backgrounds and very different sort of approach. Um, and very specifically talking about Myers and Colbert here. Mm -hmm. Oliver does something very different um, as a show, but I also appreciated him going, I did stand up in Britain. I'm used to silence. This is fine <laughs> for me. I draw power from it. Um, I think also works really, but his whole thing, while the energy of an audience is nice for last week tonight, it's not necessary. In the same way that it feels necessary for Myers and Colbert. The flip side of that is Colbert particularly just feels so befuddled by all the technology involved. Whether or not he actually is, is a matter for debate. And I don't really care either way because it plays really, really well. So that we get like three minutes of what basically amounts to dead air and technical problems with his interview with Daniel Radcliffe in which they can't hear Daniel Radcliffe over their web, over whatever setup they have. So they have to conduct the whole interview over their phones. <laughs> well, then, first through mime, because Radcliffe right. can hear them. <laughs> yes. But, well, them, Colbert. Yeah. So just the entire thing of navigating everything and how this, how this looks for them, I think is more interesting than anything. Um, but particularly with Colbert, because I think he's still trying to figure it out because of the space that he's using. Whereas I think Myers, having found this attic mm -hmm. in their house, has found a space that works. Um, even if Martha Stewart doesn't like that lamp. Um, <laughs> so I th I'm generally sort of enjoying what the late night boys are doing. Um, but I think that Full Frontal is benefiting from the fact that they had a number of things still in the can, like the field segments which is helping help pad out the episodes. I'm really curious about what the show looks like when they run out of those things. Um, and, but I'm still also really enjoying her being in the woods. Like I just, as a concept, I think that's just really fantastic of, no, we want our house to either be separate or our house just doesn't accommodate for this, but our woods do. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just very, I'm enjoying that very much as well. And I think that they're also still doing really good topical work on it. Like a whole thing about women with the coronavirus that they do this week, I think is really, really, really good. And then just doing the, doing everything with Stacey Abrams. And I just wish they had done it a couple days. They could have just edited, further edited in all the really stupid stuff Brian Kemp said this week 
of you saw this, right? Yeah, yep. Yeah, okay, L- listeners, if you aren't aware, Brian Kemp's the governor of Georgia by stealing an election, and um, he also said that he was unaware until Wednesday, this past Wednesday that non-symptomatic and asymptomatic people, or pre-symptomatic and asymptomatic people, could transmit the coronavirus. To right. which we're just going to pause right here and add it in one of our patented. <gasps> Spotlight of shame. What the fuck? What the fuck? How? How? <sighs> okay, she's gonna make me angry. I'm gonna take some deep breaths, and you're gonna continue talking. Cause yeah, so it's just but- why steal an election if you can't run a fucking state? Oh, okay, okay, no, we're good. Go ahead, go ahead, no. Yeah. So watching uh, Sam B interview, um, watch call it interview Stacey Abrams, who's just continues to be delightful. Um was just really sort of like, oh, Georgia could have Stacey Abrams right now. And it would not be in as, hopefully it would not have been in as such dire straits as it is right now. And listeners, um, I'm from Georgia. Like I was born like 30 miles outside of Atlanta. Um, so knowing that Atlanta in particular is really struggling right now and that Kemp just finally um, instituted a shelter in place order after like way too late, like two weeks, three weeks, way too late um that i'm and he's only doing it for two weeks and i'm just like what are we doing anyway sorry not the show so that's that's hey you do you (laughs) yeah i'm here with you yeah so seeing stacy abrams on my tv was like really really nice and really reassuring um so that's how i'm kind of feeling with all the roundup uh stuff um how are you feeling about it and how badly do you want them to find that rat erotica over on last week tonight because (laughs) oh boy uh, Can we just talk about the people commenting on the Rat Erotica in 1993 and just so delicately going around the fact that it's just Rat Erotica. <laughs> it's very clearly Rat, rat Erotica. And but just it's like, very popular with our with our viewers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, and the progression too, you know? like <laughs> Yes. Because it does start more... Uh, uh, understandably like like it could be understandable if you would miss the very clear subtext like it's possible like and so like start like it and it just gets more and more blatant as it goes so you wonder how much the artist was just like fucking with them because he knows they're gonna have how much can i get by yeah they're gonna have to describe this on public tv and like what what would happen you know um or just because they just always sell so this is his thing you know who knows but i yes i really do hope that we get uh like a a quarantine miracle here and they manage to find the owner of the like current owners of some of this and we can um get an update and on their next episode Uh, i will say i point out that for me i think the John Oliver has done, I mean, it's really Oliver and Samantha B, but has done the best job of finding a space. And like in my head, he just, they, they went, they ordered cause the desk or whatever surface they have for his to replicate the desk looks like the light hits it in a very similar way. So they yeah. did a good job matching that. And I, in my head, they just like got a, bucket of paint and just painted a wall in his house white like who knows if it actually is white but like when my head zooms back out there's just like a fake table it's not even a real table and a patch of wall that's white um and that's all because because that's what they needed to film for his show and 
that I mean, it, it matches the aesthetic so well that um, it's very successful. So, so, so props to John Oliver and wherever he's uh, sheltering in place at uh, for for really capturing that tone and having the that distance. Uh, I hadn't thought about it, but I think you're absolutely right that having that distance for full frontal. Of you know, I like the idea, and who knows if this is true, but the idea that, that they were like, "That's our home." Yeah, we, we don't want America seeing our home because it's ours. Plus, we have woods, and they're more interesting visually. And everybody else is doing a house, so let's do this. Um, yeah, that's that's really nice. the The interviews have been particularly interesting, and um, I, I will also give some props to uh, a new Amber says what over on late night with Seth Meyers, which I just love so much. Um, but yeah, both Ryan Reynolds and Dan Radcliffe were delightful on Colbert. Um, I also really just, it's unrelated, but um, did you see this, this uh, Tom Holland, Jake Gyllenhaal, Ryan Reynolds, like put a t-shirt on while doing a handstand against the wall challenge thing. I saw like it kind of circulated, but I didn't watch anything. Yeah, so so Holland did it because it was like some fitness challenge that was getting passed around, and he tagged uh, Gyllenhaal, who did it uh, really quickly, and he tagged Reynolds, who just made a ten second video of like looking confused and bewildered, and then going, "No," <laughs> <laughs> just like, "Yeah." <laughs> so if that's the kind of energy you're looking for during during your shelter in place. May I recommend his interview with Colbert, which is absolutely delightful. Radcliffe is just so excited to be on and just to be doing something other than, than you know, like, like we, they already finished the Lego. Him and his girlfriend already finished, like, their 3,000-piece Lego. Um, and, like, again, just the energy of, of him being like, and I don't actually do it. I am a sous chef here. I, I organize the pieces, and I hand them to her, and she does it. But that's the role that I I don't want the pressure of having to, you know, like, it's just, it's very, uh, it's very actually Miracle Workers season one kind of energy. And I'm Mm -hmm. here for it. I love it. It's delightful. So so just his enthusiasm when he's trying to, like, communicate, but he can't, they can't hear him. And uh, so doesn't try to mime, tries to write a few things down. It's just, he's just very, it's very charming. Because because he's such a at least comes who knows what these people are actually like but he comes across as as a good egg and it's the kind of thing that other people other celebrities wouldn't have time for uh, and wouldn't be gracious about um, so the, I particularly enjoyed those and I'm I'm I watched I think I only got part of the Stacey Abrams one so I'm just gonna go back and watch that again because Stacey Abrams on my TV is always gonna be a good thing as far as I'm concerned um, let's see Myers has also had on. Um, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Um, I, I think there's been a good, like a good amount of time given to some of the political figures who can actually maybe hopefully be doing something during all of this. Um, but, but I, yeah, it's been fun to watch these different interviews and um, get a little variety amongst everything else. Um, and another, just like a peek into someone else's house who's clearly um, affected by everything going on and, and just doing their best. It's, it's very, um, it's very soothing. Um, elsewhere on TV, we had Shit's Creek with Start Spreading the News. We're going to talk more about it next week. It was really fun. We'll have thoughts on next week. Uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine brought back both uh, Daddy Peralta and Grandpa Peralta um, for, for a fun episode. And I really liked 
uh, both performances, Martin Mole and also, um, what's his name? Bradley Whitford. And Bradley Whitford, thank you. They were, there was a fun triple act there. Um, and One Day at a Time, Penny Pinching was quite, I, I thought it was quite a step up from the previous episode. It felt like, oh, okay, we're, we're back. We're good. Yeah, One Day at a Time in particular really felt like it was backed as it layered in a couple of different things that I thought mm-hmm. worked really, really well of like that sense of, you have money now, but you continue to live in sort of like an economic crisis mode type of thing, uh, which is something I relate to really, really heavily. And um, that I was just like, oh, this this really resonates. So I really enjoyed it. Um, Martin Mull popping up on Brooklyn Nine-Nine was really delightful, but more delightful than that was doubling the thumb gag from like two seasons ago (laughs) i was just like yes please and thank you show um (laughs) that just made me very very happy as well so yeah so no it was a very very good week for comedy as we said yeah and you know y'all know i love the flute training stuff (laughs) it's like the we don't have a flute you're in yeah oh yeah yeah it was it was great Okay. At some point, I will actually see Whiplash, and I'm sure I will have different thoughts on it, um, various thoughts on it. But I'm also pretty sure, not knowing very much about the movie, that there will be some things that they do that I'll be like, well, that is bullshit and clearly abusive and other things that they do well of course they're they're in school for yeah that's to be a professional you, musician what do you think it yeah. takes to be a professional mu- like of course so and, and i have a feeling it might be different <laughs> than what other people think i don't know one of these days i'll, I'll, I'll cover it sometime to, to watch that but not before i watch isaac and sharifuru and josie and the pussycats um right now we're gonna go over to the rest of our weekend tv and that starts with castlevania season three um so I want to say I was not impressed with season one and I didn't keep watching, but maybe I'm confusing right. it with something else. Um, you are not. I'm you not. Okay. Not. So you clearly liked it more than I did because you kept watching. How was season three? So here's the thing. Here's the thing is season one is a garbage fire. Um, <laughs> like it's real bad. You and I both hated it. I felt like it was, I remember very specifically talking about how it was a very not good. In fact, quite bad vampire hunter d sort of ripoff um including like just being kind of a bad ova an original video animation type of deal and being just very underwhelmed and unimpressed by it considering the fact that it had just been in production so long and considering warren ellis's involvement who's a creator i typically really really like um season two dropped in 2018 and i don't remember when i watched like the first four to five episodes of that eight season um, eight episode season. I think I watched it last year after getting laid off. And then I just never went back. I never finished it. Um, so now that I am stuck at home, (laughs) um, I was just like, I'm going to finish this. And I've heard things about season three, which dropped at the beginning of March. So I was just like, I'll finish up season two. And then I watched all of season three, basically in like two days, if that, um, I've really enjoyed where the show is sort of gone. Um, season two has some really beautiful action sequences, especially in the last episode. Um, so like some really inventive fight choreographies in it, and the animation looks really, really great. Season three is, <sighs> I really liked season three, but Kate, I can understand if people got really upset about season three, because here's the thing about season three, Kate, is that it's two episodes longer than season two. So it's 10 episodes, um, which is a lot of time for them to pad stuff. But here's what they pad it with, Kate, is in classic sort of inspired by 
mid to late 90s, early aughts anime, there's just a lot of people talking about Philosophy Man. And (laughs) it's so bizarre to deal with um, just people talking about, do humans really deserve to be alive as we discuss this right now and Mm -hmm. in this current climate of, like, what kinds of people deserve to be alive? And the degrees in which that gets informed by these characters' various backstories, including a man who was basically creates demons for Dracula, who was a slave for a number of years before Dracula like found him and turned him in helped turn him into this person who in turn turns dead bodies into demons and that kind of things. And just the degrees to which cycles of violence and trauma continue and keep happening um and that's what this season ultimately gets to be about is like cycles of violence and trauma but for 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 eight episodes next to nothing happens kate there's very little action there's very little in the ways of the kinds of flashy animation that i think a lot of people really gravitated towards in season two which is much more action forward um the flip side of it is is that episodes nine and ten are just pure action all the way through um episode nine is almost dialogueless um and is just intercutting a bunch of different sorts of action sequences or payoffs of a long-standing sort of seduction that kind of occurs in two plot lines um, the episode is very purposefully called Harvest because all of a sudden all its plot crops have, are being mm-hmm. harvested after seven epi- uh, after eight episodes. Uh, so all that budget that they saved from having very limited animation, in fact, for long stretches, it's just mouths moving and eyes. So they're saving a lot of money on the animation so that they can spend it all on episodes nine and 10, but they can also got to spend all that money on really good voice actors this season as well. They got Lance Riddick to come on to do two episodes and he just kills them. Um, They got Jason Isaacs to come on as a semi-regular as the mayor of a town. He's really, really great in this, but then they had Bill Nighy come on and it's just like, how did you afford to get (laughs) Bill Nighy? Um, But he's also gets to play like this weirdo con man who's looking for in the most D D thing kate the infinite corridor mm-hmm. <laughs> which is just this big tunnel of gateways into other dimensions and shit um but it's just it's really silly and bill nighy's just like kind of doing it in his sleep but it also fits for the character mm-hmm. so i don't recommend like watching this but for me for this week it kind of just felt really good to go back to this kind of nostalgic inducing anime type of thing, even though this is not anime, but it's very much done in that style and in that vein. And I just had a really good time listening to a bunch of really talented voice actors talk about philosophy, man, and ideology. (laughs) What can we expect from each other? It was just really, really good. And I enjoyed myself immensely watching it. Um, So Yes, that was Castlevania season three, a month late. <laughs> it was just a weird, it's just a weird time to be catching up on my Netflix backlog. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, 
hey, again, no judgment here. Everybody watch what you want to watch, what's going to like hit the spot right now, because we all need very different things. So no, I'm, I'm glad that it has stepped up its game and that, yeah, I'm glad that you were able to have some fun with Castlevania this week. Um, next up is Top Chef All-Stars LA, which had Strokes of Genius, which was an interesting challenge. Having the, the, the chefs have to base a dish on an art movement was was a neat way to go uh what was particular i mean i was surprised at how little <laughs> these chefs know about art um i but, was not but continue <laughs> but like even just like basic areas because i'm goodness i mean i we're going to talk about this with allison i know very little about music outside of like the theory of how it works and my specific area specialization um but you know, I I know what different types of cooking are, you know. Sure. I know you know, like so so obviously as a musician, Baroque means a very specific thing. Right. right. Yes. You know, yeah. so so like that's something that obviously I have a very clear connection to. But there's also Rococo or Rococo, depending on which of my college professors I'm emulating. Uh and, and and neoclassicism, like all these all these movements also happened in music. So I when they started listing off the sections, I was like, oh, I have I have so many thoughts on this. And um, most of them did not do a great job of capturing the art um, movements. Uh, but it was like I just thought it was a great challenge and a really interesting way to go. And um, the people who stepped up to the challenge um, really showed themselves well. And uh, yeah, it was it. I'm, I'm again, like you were saying, Castlevania is not for everyone. Um, Top Chef LA, uh, or excuse me, Top Chef All Stars LA is not the kind of TV I'm sure a lot of people want to be watching right now, but it is exactly the kind of TV I want to be watching right now. And I'm really glad that we have an All Star season. Um, I'm, and that they're, they're getting this creative and frankly, this flashy with, yes. with this season because I really, I really enjoyed it. I did too. Like, um, I thought that this was a really great challenge. I really appreciated Tom at the top saying they normally do really well when we do these kinds of things. And then everyone just going like, this was okay. Mm-hmm. Um, was I think really interesting. One of the things that I kind of got frustrated about though, was that table of diners. Um, because in my head, I'm just like, how many of you know anything about all of this either? Yeah. Yep. Why is there not, why are the curators who led them through the Getty Museum not at this table to kind of talk about that interplay? Or why is there not a food art historian of some kind here to talk about this sort of stuff as opposed to 12 chefs? And I understand- Get Janice Poon. <laughs> get someone that exists at an intersection or just knows art. Because- as much as I sort of like like this challenge and am intrigued by the various degrees to which the chefs interpreted the art movement onto the plate, I just kept every time one of the judges or one of the chefs just went, this didn't really remind me of neoclassicism. And I just went, do you have an art degree, Gail Simmons? <laughs> and maybe you have an art minor or something. But I was just like, I really wanted an art expert at the table. Yeah. You, you don't get to say that and then not give a reason why. Yes, exactly. And you don't get a reason why in the edit. And I'm just like, mm, mm. so that was really, really, that, that was like my big frustration, but I was still really moved by everyone 
really kind of like wanting to figure out the challenge while still being food that was them. And I thought watching them try to figure that out was really, really interesting. Um, But we also need to mention just uh, Randall Park and Ellie Wong showing up Mm -hmm. and demanding fried rice just made my heart really big and warm. Um, And I really, really enjoyed that. Um, And I was really glad to see them pop up for that challenge. And, but I was also just completely flummoxed by Brian Voltaggio going, I've never had fried rice before. I don't really know what it is. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> How? <laughs> Sprinkling fried rice on top of porridge is not making fried rice. Yeah. <laughs> what is wrong with you? Probably um, gave him I, some crap, but not enough crap. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I enjoyed this episode. Um, what did you think about like the fried rice stuff? Oh, it was great. It was super fun. Yeah. Uh, I enjoyed, um, I enjoyed Leanne freaking out. Uh, and oh, also, God, I was just so happy. So it's like, oh my God, I love them. <laughs> um, and, and also then Ali Wong being like, uh, that was weird. Yeah. But Randall Park being super chill. <laughs> yes. That was, that was great. It was, it was super fun. I also appreciated the, the shout out to like, okay, finally, like, okay, fair enough. We got someone here who actually knows how to make fried rice. Good texture. Didn't like the flavors. You got kind of screwed by your ingredients. Uh, so we're going to give the one to somebody else. But I like the shout out to Leanne actually nailing the texture in a way that it seems like most of them did not. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was it was very fun and cute and personal. And even just like the anecdote about the, the chocolate fried rice, right, oh, was just so beautiful. Very good. Very good. I would have loved to see someone try that and then just have Randall Park go, like, no, nah, there's just better. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that would have been great. Good stuff. Yeah, I, like I said, I'm, I'm very here for everything. Top Chef All Stars, All Stars LA. I mean, just seeing the Getty Museum was gorgeous. Um, I've seen a few different things that have been filmed there, and it's always, it's always lovely. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I mean, I feel like they probably, almost certainly, like did this guest spot when whatchamacallit, call um, Always Be My Maybe was like mm-hmm. going to come out, and then it was just like. Oh, right. This show just airs whenever the hell Bravo wants it to air. So we can't really mention it. But you're both here. So yeah, and we love you. So it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which was, uh, that was such a fun movie. Um, And it was because like, I didn't know that they had that like, decades long connection, the, yeah. those, those two. So that added another little layer of, of fun to it. Um, Yeah. Uh, our last show of the week is RuPaul's Drag Race, and we had this week the acting challenge with Gay's Anatomy, and uh, I was really pleasantly surprised by the queens because, like, I've been saying all along, this is a strong set of queens. This is a strong season of queens, um, but I think this is one of the best acting challenges they've done as far as like actual performances. It wasn't a. There have been funnier ones, but I think as far as like an overall across the board. Pretty much everybody did good. And to the point where I was irritated with the judges because I think they needed to do a much better job of explaining their critiques. Um, and when the when the contestants do this solid a job, like I thought that they really did this episode, it is, in, it is incumbent upon the judges to explain in a meaningful and interesting and compelling way why why they're doing what they're doing and and a show like drag race where it's because of the serves the narratives for our our plans for the season is not an acceptable answer 
So you got to get better at bullshitting. <laughs> um, so that was sort of my takeaway for this one. Uh, I, I was, I've been disappointed by the lip sync since they switched back to lip sync for your life pretty much all season. So I did, wasn't all that compelled by the lip sync, but I did think that the challenge was fun and I wouldn't have pegged Grey's Anatomy as a choice for this kind of a challenge, but I thought it was actually pretty brilliant because in Grey's Anatomy, usually on their acting challenges, right? They have the setup, which is the same, and then they have to make it ridiculous and drag for the for the end of the story, right? But on Grey's Anatomy, the end of the, of the story is as or more ridiculous than what they would do on Drag Race. So they could actually, instead of having no idea what to do for the ending, and then randomly there's a food fight or uh, somebody's wigs are coming off, they can be like, ah, no, now we're going to have the character have sex with the ghost. And that is the thing they did on the show. So I just thought it was a really good pair of a big ensemble cast drama that they could use um, and pay tribute to in this way. And now I've been talking for too long. So what did you think about Drag Race? Yeah, I think that one of the challenges of this episode is that all of them were generally really good in the thing. Even like I texted this to you um, of Aiden's ghost patient type thing. Of oh, guys, this it's is a so, Mae West. It's so brilliant. And I, as soon as you texted me, I was like, "Oh my god, you're 100 percent right." I wish I had caught like thought of that because yeah. I should have put it in my review because you were well, so right. Well, here's the thing about it is like. Aiden didn't have any conception for who Mae West was and was, like, struggling beyond, with that. Beyond, like, and, the basic, like, you know, even, maybe even just beyond Alaska's Mae West, you know, from All Stars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. And one of the things that, like, I pointed out to my partner while we were watching this, I was like, okay, but A, I don't really have a huge issue with Aiden not knowing who Mae West is, but mm-hmm. B, there was also someone else that no one knew, like, this season already, and I can't remember who it was. Oh, someone didn't know Fosse. Fosse, right, no, it was Fosse. Like, some people just didn't know Fosse, and I'm just like, this is, this is A, what happens when you cast, like, so young. But B, this is also just, this is how culture is adjusting, and expectations need to shift. But the thing that it struck me was, is that it has to be unintentional, because if you don't know Mae West, then you don't know Jimmy Stewart, probably. <laughs> probably, <laughs> And but yet Aiden was doing Mae West by way of Jimmy Stewart in the warble and the half stutter. And I was just so charmed by it that I found it very, very funny um, in ways that Britta found deeply frustrating. Um, (laughs) While also finding Britta to be very, very frustrating in all of this um, on multiple levels. Um, But I was just like, no, this, this is pretty solid and she's giving you plenty to work with here. You're just, you just don't like her. Mm-hmm. So you're just going to not engage, um, which is bad acting and bad scene work. But I think the the other thing that I kind of was struck by with this is yes, everyone's really consistent. It's not as funny as it should be. And as a result, it just feels so long <laughs> as like a bit of like, yeah, there are lots of different scenes, but it just feels really, really long. Um, which is, I think, part one of the problems is it's just it's just very long. So that was a little frustrating. But I do agree with you that the judges need to and the edit needs to start factoring in really what the critiques are about and what they're being driven by because this group's really really strong. 
And I think that that needs to really start coming out in these whatchamacallits, in the, in the whatchamacallits, in the critiques. Yeah, in the, in the deliberations and also yeah. when they're giving feedback. Especially because, I mean, it's something that has become a narrative for Jan already of she yeah. keeps being safe. And yeah, she wants to win, but it's also, it's not just that it, it is, it is detrimental to be safe too often because that means you don't get any feedback at all. Yeah. And right, if you don't exactly. get any feedback, like if Crystal hadn't been on the bottom, Crystal wouldn't have known that she needed to change her makeup, not because she actually needed to change her makeup, but if she wants to do well on the show, she better yes. change her makeup. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and and so Jan, for example, as one, has not gotten any feedback since the competition started and not having any connection to the judges. That also means you don't get an opportunity to show your personality and for them to warm right. to you. You know, like like the way that Heidi did by being in the bottom. They were like, oh, I, okay, we actually really like her. Um, so, so if they're not going to give any feedback to anybody in the middle and the middle is going to be like most of them. And not all that discernible a difference as to who's up top and who's not, right? Then, then you run into a problem. And this, I mean, this is a strong cast of queens. Improv is not their thing. You can imagine how that's going to impact Snatch Game, which is the next episode. But the show has a bigger problem, which is it's a good problem. They they're very talented. There's a like. There's a lot of overlap in their skill set, and also they are all serious and prepared and doing their best. That means that you've got to deliver in other ways from the judging panel and to make satisfying TV. And I do think the, um, like, one of the few threads they have running right now is this Aiden versus Britta thing, right? Yeah. But the trouble is, I don't like Britta, but I also don't really like Aiden. Uh, Mm -hmm. because of various things. Uh, There have been episodes where I like her more and where I like her less. But, like, if that's your main emotional thing, they're not gonna, they're not gonna kiss and make up, right? They're not gonna, like, have a heart-to-heart and get over this and then, like, we can move forward the way that often happens in those kind of tensions within the workroom. So that means eventually one of them is gonna win. Yeah. And I don't care about either of them winning. And if that's the best you can do for a through line, then, I mean, you got, I mean, and I know obviously the Sherry Pie of it all, their, their intentional like structure to the season was very affected by that. But they record a lot of those talking heads. I'm surprised they, they have not done more planning around narratives beyond things that involve Sherry Pie and also this Britta Aiden thing. Um, so yeah, I'm hoping that I'm hoping that the judges will rise to the level the Queens are giving. Cause you know, like I feel like Nicki Minaj and Leslie Jones would have had more interesting things to say to them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You did point out that Britta is sort of struggling. And as one of those established Queens, like that's sort of like a weird thing that happens on the shows that like, they just kind of can't find a groove just yet. Um, and I think we're seeing that happening. And we're seeing like her not necessarily lash out, but just get really, really frustrated. And Aiden as like this very sort of developing queen um, is really an easy target for that kind of ire. But it's also just a 
Aiden just feels feels like, and as much as I sort of like Aiden's drag, very particularly in this episode, I think that that Science Lamb's look is really, really good. But I also do think that Aiden's like, well, I can sort of coast because I'm the weird one of the season. And they always keep the weird one around for a little while because the contrast. Um, but at the same time, it's just like, mm, even I'm like, yeah, you can't, you can't just do that. You, you need to do more. Um, but I think also your point about Jan is really well taken in terms of, yeah, I don't know who she is. Um, and that's, that's just a larger problem that she has because she's doing a good job, but she's just very in the middle. Whereas I think someone like Gigi is really kind of putting a lot out there and really keeping themselves really forward. And I think that's really, really smart. Even when they're safe, it feels like they're making impact. Like that Troops Beverly Hills look is just fantastic. Um, so I really enjoyed that. So yeah, no, I think this is what happens when you've got a really strong season. That's not all stars. And with all stars, you've got all that stuff built in with here. You kind of have an all star esque season without anything built in. And because of the cherry pie stuff, you can feel this kind of Frankenstein's monster-esque edit emerging of, oh, no, we don't have anything because we had our whole comedy queen push ready to go after last season. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And um, yeah, the only other thing uh, I'll mention is that now we've had the improv challenge, we've had the acting challenge, we've had the ball challenge. And we're going to have Snatch Game left. What's left? Well, I mean, we've got the Makeover Challenge, obviously. Makeover Challenge, yeah. Because we still have nine queens after Snatch Game. Um, Then, I mean, I feel like we're probably... I feel like there's definitely like a double elimination coming up. Okay. Um, Dance Challenge, maybe? Oh, right. No, they do need to do a Dance Choreography Challenge of some kind. Um, though they're probably, yeah, because we haven't had Todrick at all yet. So (laughs) maybe like a roast or other kind of comedy that is an improv, you know? Right. Um, then there also needs to be a, um, there needs to be like a larger scale crafting challenge Mm -hmm. because one of the things that like, while I'm sort of enjoying this at the same time, I'm like, they told you what all these looks were and you came prepared. I want to see more of you building stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so there has to be like a very dedicated crafting episode. I'm hoping, I'm hoping because a design episode, because you, you and I both know that those are my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I like watching people beg for help. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I look forward to whatever they have coming next. Um, and I'll have some thoughts on snatch game. The, um, the top, Two queens, I thought, did a good job, and the bottom queen was pretty clear to me. And then I think the show was about right with where they placed everyone, but ten queens is too many for Snatch Game, man. There's just not yeah, enough time. It's normally eight, right? Well, I thought so, but so I went back and checked, and actually, usually it's been nine. A few times okay. it's been eight. Um, once it was seven it, over on Drivers UK, and that they, that served it really well. Um, that episode really well, but it's been 10, three times in season six, which is arguably the best, arguably the best snatch game ever. And in nine, which was not great. Um, but usually it's been either eight or nine 
Okay. And I think, I mean, I, I think they should have learned something from, from Drag Race UK doing so well. And having, because there are too many queens that are in the middle that get like barely one or two moments who might have been better or might have been worse or might not have had anything else funny that they did, but you don't get any sense of that. And okay. there isn't, I mean, I, I guess I won't say more because I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but um, I think, th- I think. Well, by the time this comes out, they'll have already seen it, hopefully. But I don't want to spoil it for you. Snatch Game is over at the midpoint of the episode. That's not yeah, right. Yeah, Noel's making a face, everyone. Yeah. And I there was really good workroom stuff after that that I actually thought was really lovely and uh very invaluable. And there there was um yeah, like there's reason there's time that they were giving to things um later and they still have, you know, a ten person runway and the lip sync and all that. I get it. But I just would have liked more time for Snatch Game. There's only three questions on Snatch Game. There's introductions and then three questions. And the, and of course, they don't go to all the queens on each question. They go to like half of them. So it's just, I mean, maybe there just was nothing else on the cutting room floor. That's possible. Who? Do, I mean, we don't know. But yeah. I feel like the queens who did the best and the queens who did the worst and the queens in the middle would all have benefited from more time. Even mm-hmm. if it was like the ones who are on the bottom, just to show them flailing, it would have right. made for a more interesting um, snatch game. And like, even if you do bad, like it is better to do bad <laughs> on snatch game than to just be kind of like there. And with more time, that would have allowed. I mean, like I, based on some of the things the queens are saying afterwards. It feels like there was other stuff that was cut out that we were just not seeing for time. And maybe it wasn't funny or maybe it wasn't more interesting. It, you know, who knows? Um, it could have just been the same gags told different ways, which is often the thing that the queens do because they know they're not going to use every take. But um, I was hope. I mean, I was underwhelmed by the Snatch Game, despite a, a couple of really good performances. So, um, yeah, I will look forward to your thoughts once you've had a chance to see it. Um, and we'll call our week in TV there. What wins your week in TV? You've got a bunch of contenders here. Yeah, uh, but it's a no brainer. It's definitely keep your hands off eyes open. Um, this is, again, something, please, if you're listening, seek it out if it's available in your area. If you're in the US, it's on Crunchyroll. Go watch it. It's great. It's lovely. It's exactly what you need right now, I think. Um, what about you? What won your week in TV? Um, well, I've been enjoying our Lucifer conversations, I gotta say, <laughs> a lot. Um, but nope, you uh, don't get to choose that. You don't get That's to choose That's a whole Lucifer? other podcast. It's a whole other That's podcast. A different podcast. <laughs> um, well, I think I'll give it to. Hmm. I think I'm gonna give it to Steven Universe Future. Okay. With a shout out to Top Chef, because. I mean, I liked all the comedies that I watched, but like that hit the spot in a way that other stuff didn't quite this this past week. So that's where I will leave that. Now we will take a break, listen to some more music from Adam Schlesinger and come back with our season spotlight on Steven Universe Future. Oh, it's another Christmas song. Whoa, get ready, brother, for another Christmas song. They play for a month. Christmas song. Santa Claus singing on naughty snow. Reindeer ringing in the mistletoe. The manger's on fire. The holly's aglow. Hear the baby Jesus crying, ho, ho, ho. Hey, it's an 
Christmas song. Yay! Another oft-returning, royalty-earning Christmas song. I've got plenty more, so go buy a modem. Log on to iTunes and pay to download them. Hey! For another Christmas song! Chestnuts glisten on a silent night. Sleigh bells kissing by candlelight. The tree is frozen, the winter's bright. Who'd have thought the wise man looked so white? You! We're back with the Televerse. This is Kate Calls It Joins Ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. And it, it's time. It's time, Noel. We've put it off. But um, we've got to talk about Steven Universe future. And we've put it off for a few weeks here. Uh, obviously, these episodes just aired. The show just finished up this past week. But we haven't really talked about it much on the podcast because it's been very troubling and uh, intense. These This, you know, build up to this series finale. Um, and we're just not in the headspace for that right now because of all of this life right now um but you know we weren't going to let the end of steven universe and steven universe future go by without without diving in a bit and i thought that that build up really worked and i thought that the penultimate episode was lovely and beautiful and very steven universe and then i thought the finale was fine yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you know, I would, I, th- I think that the penultimate episode needed so much more, but they weren't going to give it more. And the um, because that maybe that would be too scary, and maybe that would be too much, too traumatizing. Um, but yeah, I get what the, I think I get what they're going for with the the tone and the energy of these last like this last string of episodes leading into our crisis point and then the denouement and the idea of having the finale actually be a denouement. I like that, but. I don't know. I think uh, maybe maybe this is one that I will like more and more with time. I think that's I think that's very possible. But for right now, I'm just very focused on the penultimate episode. Where are you at with Steven Universe Future? No, I absolutely agree. I think the penultimate episode is just really, really gorgeous and really, really beautiful, and also really, really important. Um, just on what it's doing and what like future ultimately is sort of like about. Um, but the future, the finale episode, I mean, yes, it's fine. It's like a multi-month time skip. <laughs> um, and it, it feels very sort of, it feels weirdly rushed. Um, but at the same time, like I'm still okay with it in a weird way of like, no, because I still got to see everyone cry at the end, so I'm okay. <laughs> um, and that's that's kind of all I needed was to see everyone cry at the end. Um, it also just felt like very, the future also feels very kind of stock sitcom sort of thing of a kid moving out and the parents and everyone being real tough about it. And then, but then the, the person moving out was just like, why isn't anyone else sad? And then at the end, everyone's sad. Um, but there's something really like lovely and nice about it all the same. But no, um, I Am My Monster is sort of like, I think probably one of the most important episodes that Steven Universe is, as a franchise has sort of put out. So I think that that's worth sort of tackling, um, even though Homeworld Bound and Everything's Fine, which I feel like needs an exclamation mark, um, <clears throat> are both also really good in their own way um, from just on any sort of 
on all sorts of things. So, um, where do you want to start? <laughs> um, let's start with. I think I would have been fine with this finale if there if I had a better sense of the distance and time between the two last two episodes. If I had a sense of sure. like like e- like with a montage or with or like some way of and they they give a few like dialogue indications of time and of changes that Steven has made and cuz I feel like the cuz I am my monster is so significant and we're going to talk about it. But I feel like it, it it that's such an important thing for kids to see and for people to right. see. Yeah. And then they that's don't the about show the yeah. work. Yeah, that's the thing about it is that they don't show the work. And I understand that like they don't have the time and the space for it, but acknowledging that he has a therapist is not the same thing as showing the work. And even yeah. though arguably I am the monster is the work, it's mm-hmm. actually just the, the start beginning. Of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and and so that I think that really it do, it doesn't detract from the accomplishment of I am my monster and of the the very strong sense that this has always been in the DNA of the show. This has always been something that, of course, if they were given the opportunity, they were going to get to, um, they were going to show. But it it's so it's so not Stephen, and it's so not Rebecca Sugar to not show the process and the work. They show the process and the work getting there. Yes. And they don't have the episodes to show it after, but like, yeah, it's just very tidy. And that's a little disappointing. Yeah. And I think that a lot of that just like, it almost like, I'm almost like be willing to give up like a number of the stuff at the beginning of the future. Oh yeah, definitely. While does, ultimately some good thematic stuff that leads up to this point to a certain degree i'd be willing to cut all of that to get a sense of the work Mm -hmm. of that those couple of months between i am my monster and the future and what that process looks like uh because it's gonna like who who is steven's therapist and how are they qualified to help him (laughs) (laughs) like who did they get yeah um because that like i i just want to meet steven's therapist and i also want to be in that room the first time steven explains all of it mm-hmm. <laughs> um like what empire city <laughs> yeah therapist in a high rise anyway so that's missing and it feels it it feels like a weird hole and like you said when you're doing something like I am my monster and it's overall significance of its message of, but then not getting to show that work of getting to the point where you feel like you can leave and that you're able to say goodbye to all these people. Um, What does this mean? What does this look like? And that you've managed to find a compromise with your girlfriend who you're kissing on the mouth now. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just, yay Uh, (laughs) we ship it yeah oh i ship it so hard um that i just i wanted to see that and it not being there is a little frustrating but it's more than a little frustrating it's just frustrating but i understand like you just didn't have time except you did you just made chose to spend it differently and that's you know that's that's how that's how it goes that that's they 
knew very clearly where, where they were building to. And it also seems like it's very intentional that this is the penultimate episode. They didn't want to do a, a 10 episodes up, 10 episodes down structure. Because right. they very easily could have. Um, but I think they wanted... They, I think they wanted the shock value of the the penultimate transformation, and of because this is very clearly, and Rebecca Sugar has talked about this as well, a critique of this style of story with kid heroes like like an Ender's Game or a, like that have kid heroes saving the world and killing people and being in these traumatizing battles and or, I mean Harry Potter. And just being perfectly fine because they won. <laughs> so therefore, there's no trauma. <laughs> like, yay, I didn't get, I, but it's, it's okay because my finger, my cats, my fingers turned into cats, but they went back. So it's fine. So I hope you don't need to talk about the body horror of that, you know, my sense of self, <laughs> you know. Um, so it, they wanted to have you think you knew what the story was and then do this other thing and then give that the weight it needed. Um, so I, I mean, I see what they're doing, but. You know, it would have been nice. Um, so let's talk about the things that we, you know, we agree that they did so well, which is I Am My Monster and the corruption and loss of self and self-destruction, uh, self-destructive behavior of Steven um, becoming this gargantuan, like, white diamond-sized monster. Um, it's... As soon Why does as you re- this always happen when we visit? <laughs> as soon as, like, and it, I mean, it's, it's obviously a parallel for teenage angst and and rage. It's obviously a parallel for trauma, but it also feels. I mean, it feels completely relatable and completely universal, but also very specific to Stephen. And I think that that is that's no small feat to do that. Yeah, I think that the like, yeah, no, the monster feels vaguely generic-y but it feels also just kind of perfect in terms of like it's a big scary thing to protect but it's rat lashing out now um it's a golem <laughs> the golem yeah no exactly um the that exploration of trauma i think is what really works here but it's also not just the exploration of trauma that i think is really significant um that i think that Connie really specifically her appearance at the end of that episode is like, it's not about you (laughs) for once. It's not about you, everyone. And I think that that's a really good sort of like buy into what something like Rebecca sugar told me about when I interviewed her for the movie a little bit was the fact that what we're going to do has, will deal with the movie the ramifications of the movie. And I just kept going, yeah, when's that going to happen? And then like, it happens a little bit here to a certain extent that we see Spinell again, which is delightful, but also the show to show the episode to episode budget does cannot accommodate a character like Spinell in her animation style, because it's more expensive than the rest of the animation. Um, But that it's the last gasp of Steven being steven to save someone through the power of steven and that there's just so that not focusing on yourself can only go so far and i think that's ultimately like the thing that for me as a person who routinely puts others before (laughs) himself like to a to a detrimental detrimental extent very often 
that that is something that hit really hard but for like putting that into a frame of like teen angst and that all that kind of stuff which i now remember what i was going to say is that like as steven grows up in that pink glow form his pompadour starts to look like greg steven mm-hmm. a little bit more which i'm just like oh show this is why i like you um that tying that to teen angst and like tying it to a concept that isn't that is much more about the world doesn't understand me to i just need someone to listen to me which is very different tonally i think that and also like that whole concept of everyone's moving on and i can't and i don't know what that looks like is also very different sort of teen angst that i'm just find really both perfect for like a teenager type of thing in like a post high school sort of setting, but also just as an underemployed 30 something of like, I don't know what this is anymore type of thing. It's just like, Oh, you're hitting all the buttons show. You're hitting all the buttons. Like that connection to stag visually and stag. Thank you. Like really revisiting the trauma of the movie through the diamonds, new powers and specifically through white's, new power um yeah was really impactful in the the homework homeworld bound episode and like just the homeworld episodes that we got having like i mean i think it's a, even it is as much as it's appropriately shown as the violation that it is what steven does with white i think it's like an important thing that apparently white had never realized that this is bad to do this to people and it's traumatizing. Um, watching Steven just continue to bury everything. Like, Everything's Fine is is a, a, is a good episode. But I, f- I kind of felt like that's what the whole season had been. <laughs> the whole season yes. had been Everything's Fine. And you do need it at that point in the story. You need that, that beat in the story. But um, it felt like... Maybe and maybe for people who just who did, weren't getting the message yet, you know. Yeah. Um, having that, I mean, it also I think it also explains why the beginning of Steven Universe Future feels so meandering, and yeah. it's because it's lulling us into this false sense of security. We're watching, going, when are they going to deal with these things that happen, these traumas from the end of Steven Universe before the movie? When are we going to deal with this, 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 and this? Because they slap a Band-Aid on it and go like, oh, we're going to have baths for the, the 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 corrupted gems and we'll just, presto, they're all fine and everybody's happy. Um, and it's because they were, they wanted to save that for a pivot point leading, you know, into their their big climax in Denouement. But um, it was upsetting. It was disturbing. And the like the imagery that they use and the use of Jasper in these episodes, I think it's been really powerful having, um, you know, like we didn't get our lapis, uh, the, the fusion that some people wanted, which is paired out in lapis. We didn't get it, but we did get a return to the chains from the ocean from lapis. There was a lot of recurring imagery imagery yeah. from the cookie cat and, you know, all the way through these episodes. Um, but specifically tying Steven and Pink Steven and then Monster Steven to Jasper and even just the art for when she started being corrupted. Um, 
or turning like becoming a monster too was just really it was really powerful i liked the what they gave especially um amethyst i like that amethyst uh, was the one to connect to Steven most in everything that was happening. I like that of the, of the main crystal gems, she's the one with the self-esteem issues. She's with the one with the self-loathing that she's processing. And I like that they, after no, like even hint of that for so long, because she is processed and really worked on that stuff for herself. Um, they bring that back and it immediately is impactful. Uh, having, you know, more you i think i think the balance of how much destruction can steven cause and have us not feel like we're punishing him right and it needs to be a real threat and we can't just solve everything with a hug but we're going to kind of solve everything with a hug yeah. <laughs> you know i think they they really pull all of that together in a nice way and having um the fact that the episode ends not i mean it's a hug but it is a sad hug it is like sobs is really really powerful and so and like that you know that there are so many people watching especially because i always think of this in the context of the intended audience which is everyone is welcome but this is for kids um there are so many kids who needed to see that um so i'm i mean, i'm very grateful that cartoon network yeah, it was interested in telling the story and made space for it. And certainly the Rebe- Rebecca Sugar and her team wanted to tell the story. Kids can be weirdly selfish, but they're also like people who will put themselves, put particularly parents, but will put people before themselves because that's how things work for them. Or they think of themselves as the equals of the adults around them. Yeah. And so... You know, it's like, well, they could really use some help right now. It's like, no, that is not your job. You're the kid. Right, exactly. And I think that exploring that and dramatizing that in the ways that they have through the entire run of the show, Stephen being that magical kid that fixes everyone, um, then everyone else not being able to fix him and not being able to accept that he now needs help. I think is really, really significant for both its attended audience, but for just like literally any human being on Mm -hmm. the face of the planet. Um, So it's just, it works really, really well. And yeah, the hug's just super sad, but it also has that element of just like lots of like love from like Greg refusing to leave because he's just like, no, I can't leave this time. (laughs) I leave every time. I can't leave this time. And then Connie just like, catapulting onto the forehead and just like we're all here (laughs) (laughs) forehead kiss um Mm -hmm. and it's just like oh this is all very good and i'm very sad now Mm -hmm. um yeah yeah and like you said all the all the recurring imagery i think works really really well too so yeah you you know there are so many people watching this at home just ugly crying just like total messes watching this my partner and i were both very very close yeah, um, totally crying. Um, and also, <sighs> Lapis is like the most powerful of everyone, and I just really yeah. feel like we all need to acknowledge that. <laughs> oh, it's obvious. Like she's obviously the most powerful individual, like gem of them all. Like, yeah, it's not close. <laughs> like it's it's one of those things where like like you make Magneto as a character, like you have magnet powers, and be like okay, and then you have someone who really understands magnetism go like, 
oh, you guys don't realize what you did because yeah. this. <laughs> They're like, oh, shit. Way superpowered, way overpowered. The only way this character can ever work is if they don't choose to actually use the full extent of their powers. Yeah. That's that's Lapis. <laughs> um. So what non-sad things stood out to you in this? Um. And I'll get us started with Jasper walking out of a out of a building and then walking back into the building but not using the same outline of herself <laughs> um was just so goddamn funny <laughs> yeah that was pretty I, great i kind of needed that j- joke as well but it just broke me so hard <laughs> i i like the return of the gem whose name i don't remember but is very excited by about the screams yes my partner was so excited yeah. I like the laughter, too, because it sounds just like the screams. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a great design, and it's so fun. Yeah, the, that vo- the voice voice acting for that character is always delightful, and the writing so good. Let me see. Other things that I really appreciated, um, I, I appreciate that they used music well. Di- I mean... You know, I would have been fine with a, sol- a song solving everything because I yes. trust I trust these writers to do that in a way that doesn't feel like a cheat. But instead of celebrating the power of music more than um, using it as a shortcut, but uh, I I'm also I'm almost grateful that there isn't more music in these last episodes because the it's such a violation when Stephen is using music for personal gain and you know the dark side comparatively you know first first even um when he's trying to uh propose to connie and get her to uh solve all his problems <laughs> by by agreeing to be stevani um that it's like it's a it's a charming nice song but it also is just so dark and and desperate and sad and if we had gotten any more music in these episodes it would have, I'm sure, been very good music, but it all also would have been very uh, difficult and sort of um, tarnishing something for for the character. So I'm actually really grateful we didn't get more of it, if that makes sense. Sorry, I took a thing that was a happy thing and made it a sad thing. <laughs> Make a sad thing. <laughs> um this is why i don't sing um vocal mvp of this is patty lapone for me oh she's so Um, good like the the pivot of the voice delivery for yellow from everything we've gotten up to basically like a little bit of the movie but really these these couple of appearances is just the sheer amount of dedication to differentiating who yellow is just really, really impressive. Like, I feel like there's a just noticeable vocal shift in Lapone's performance that I just kind of couldn't get over it. Yeah, no, there's a lot of good stuff here. Uh, I like how the Diamond's new powers are interesting. Some of them make more sense than others, um, but also so easily evil. Yes, right? <laughs> They're trying to be good, but they just, like, can't, like, anything that's that powerful can't help but 
also be very easy to pervert towards evil. And like, like it's almost like you know they're going to need once Steven's in a place to to be checking in on them more versus being checked in on by them. Uh, where you can be like, uh, uh, white, did you? Or like yellow or blue? Are you still making those happy clouds? Okay, because like you're kind of slipping into mind control again here. So yeah. if you'd like... We appreciate the not making us all sob, but, like, also let people feel their feel feelings. Feel their feelings, yeah. And so they're just like, oh, yeah, sorry, Steven, our bad. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you get when you're just too powerful. Or in White Diamond's case, too scary 1930s uh, animation glamorous. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, oh, man. Um, do we have any... Final thoughts on Steven Universe future and and really Steven Universe. I mean, we love the show. We, it's it has so much to offer, and I'm sure we'll both need some time and distance from it. But uh, yeah, it, it's such a lovely and wonderful thing that I'm sure yeah. will and has helped so many people. Yeah, and that's I think that's the thing is like the entirety of this franchise. I think is just really really important, significant in terms of what it wanted to do, what it actually accomplished, and just the fact that it probably opened up like any number of doors for both its intended audiences, but people that were probably a little bit older than its intended audience. And I think that that is in and of itself just really, really powerful. But also just the fact that hopefully parents watching this went, oh, oh. And I think that that's really great. And just the fact that they did a kids show about empathy without and really complicated those concepts especially within these last four episodes um i think is also really really meaningful so uh this this was just one of the probably most important shows within like the past 10 years suck it other prestige dramas (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah it's uh it's a, a very clear successor to Adventure Time and just another one of these shows that, like I initially said when I first discovered and caught up with Adventure Time, I'm just so, so grateful that there's a generation of kids who have grown up and will grow up with Steven Universe in their life. So thank you to Rebecca Sugar. Thank you to the yep. team, the whole creative team over there. And yeah, it's been Cartoon Network. If you want to like put this on Blu-ray or something, like that'd be great. Let us give you our money. Yeah. Right. Like, I'd like to give you money. Please let us give you money so that we can, because I'm not going to be able to share this show with older type people by saying, well, you can download the app and then they have a rotating set of episodes that are available at various times. And like, just, just put it out on DVD. Come on. I need I mean, physical media. Yeah. I need physical media too, which reminds me that I need to probably maybe buy that adventure time in like in Chiridian set. It just looks so pretty, but it's so big. Yeah. I, I don't trust not, I like, I need a physical copy of this and adventure time. Cause I don't trust it to stay available streaming. That's not nope, going to be me neither. a thing that I trust. So Anyways, uh, well, this has been quite a lovely chat. Now, uh, a few show notes before we head into our uh, our, our remembrance and uh, 
appreciation of Adam Schlesinger. You can find a post for this episode over at theteleverse.org where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's TV. You can like our page on Facebook and set up a conversation there. You can email us, theteleverse at gmail.com. We are up in uh, Apple Podcasts with an M48 chaptered feed and MP3 unchaptered feed. We'd appreciate ratings and reviews there and over in Stitcher uh, where we're also available and you can find my drag race reviews over at the AV Club um, and I, of course, I'm on Twitter. I am at the Tele- Televerse, Noel, you are? At Noel RK. Thank you so much for a great week, Kate. Thank you, Noel. And we're going to now head uh, into our our remembrance of Adam Schlesinger. And we are excited and happy to welcome back friend of the show, Alison Shoemaker from the AV Club and Vulture and Ebert, uh, RogerEbert.com and lots of other places. And most importantly, streaming in place. Oh, well, of course. Well, of course. Support the streaming in place. So we will take a listen to That Thing You Do and come back right after that to talk Adam Schlesinger. We're back with the Televerse, and that was uh, that thing you do, which is just a, just a beautiful concoction of a pop song and an absolutely brilliant example of the work of someone we're going to be talking about here in our next segment, and that is Adam Schlesinger. Uh, to talk about him, we wanted to invite back friend of the show, Alison Shoemaker, because among many things, many things he has done in his career, uh, the part that connects most directly to what we do here in the Televerse is, of course, the music of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And when we think Crazy Ex-Girlfriend here at the Televerse, we think we got to get Allison. Um, so, <laughs> Allison, thank you so much for coming on to talk with us. Um, and I'm very sorry that this is the reason we're talking today. And it's going to make me angry <laughs> and sad <laughs> and emotional, and that's okay. But um, but I, I'm hoping that mostly we will end in a place of celebration, because Adam Schlesinger wrote a ridiculous amount of music in his 52 years, and we are lucky, lucky that we have gotten as much of it as we have. Yeah, um, thanks for having me. He was insanely prolific, and you could pick any one of the media that he worked in, and um, just look at his career in that field. And it would have been like, oh, well, you know, he is a bright light, right? Like just as someone writing in music theater, right? Like doing really well, just as someone composing for film, really great. Just as a writer of comedy songs for television, really great. Two really great bands, like it just an excellent producer, like a, just an all-time great producer, um, sort of staggering. Uh, and it's always... You know, it's always sad when you lose anybody mm-hmm. um, who is the, like human life, sad, whatever. God, uh, it's a strange time. Um, but in this case, you know, he had based on 
the amount of music that he wrote in his 52 years, um, you know, we had so much music that was still coming and he brought so much joy to so many people, people he worked with, people who loved his music um, in whatever form they found it, uh, that I think it is um, obviously a huge loss and the outpouring of affection for his work has been really heartening for me um, as someone who, you know, has really connected with a lot of the stuff that he has done. And you're right, that thing you do in any anybody else's career, you'd be like, well, that's the pinnacle, right? That's the perfect pop song. <laughs> it's incredibly hard to write a perfect pop song. And it's just one of the many things that Adam Schlesinger did. Um, I uh, really quick want to share and something I learned yesterday. I'm working on a piece for the AV Club about um, his work on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and um, and what he did. And I'm excited about that. I hope you'll go see it when it publishes probably tomorrow. But um, as a result, I was talking to some of the people who worked with him, one of whom is Rachel Bloom, and she shared this with me, which I didn't know, and maybe it's out there somewhere else, but I learned it from her, so credit, Rachel Bloom. Um, the way that that song got written is the uh, Playtone um, and Tom Hanks and the people producing the movie did a demo derby where they asked songwriters to send in a song with the title that thing you do and they would pick one right it's the same way that mary steenburgen wound up writing for wild rose um which is uh, not using the name mary steenburgen because she's amazing um but he is just one of she fought probably thousands of songwriters who sent in songs for that thing you do and it of course is the one that got chosen because it is it is impossible for me to imagine that movie with any other song you know like any other song, it's how hard, not just to write a perfect two-minute pop song, but also to write a song that is believable as a massive global hit in another era, yeah. right? Like, And it really is believable as a life-altering hit song that also has to work as a ballad because that's how it's initially performed. Right. And it's all a mistake that they do it live at a too fast tempo and it becomes a hit. So um, yeah, a great, a great song. One of many great songs in a great career. Well, and again, it's the song has to work. That's hard enough. But if that song doesn't work, really the whole movie doesn't work. <laughs> like, yeah. The entire film could be exactly the same with those terrific performances and the strong, you know, direction, first direction, um, first feature film direction from Tom Hanks um, and, and charming actors and good script and all of that stuff. If the song doesn't work, the movie doesn't work. And yeah, the, the, um, who I think it was Ethan Embry, tweeted about that experience of like being in the room and listening to like the, the, the different demo tapes and just everybody, when they got to that demo being like, okay, well, this is the one we're going to have to learn. <laughs> this is clearly the correct choice. Um, and it is, it is very easy. I think for people who don't think about it and study and appreciate music uh, very much to, to, to be like, Oh yeah, that song from that one movie. Yeah. But every time I think of that movie or think of, like or see the poster or see a still from it or anything i hear the song in my head and yeah. mm -hmm. for again like you guys were saying like we were saying earlier one song that you if you can manage to do that once in your life that is impressive but 
then you throw on other songs that people might not know that he has written, like the 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 Tony Award intro. It's not just for gays anymore that NPH did. I was like, oh, that was him because that was delightful and super fun. And like, there's a, and he's got he's got Emmys for writing st- uh, musicals for uh, Sesame Street, and like, it's such a diverse career. So much, um, yeah. yeah it's such a, such a mastery of like. Specific forms, yes, but also the curiosity and the ability to to expand into a lot of different areas of music. We also still will have new music coming from him. He was, um, uh, I think it was Atlantic Theater Company was set to open a musical that he wrote with Sarah Silverman based on um, a book of hers called The Bedwetter uh, that was originally set to open on May 1st. Obviously, it is not anymore, um, but I'm sure that they will. I talked to a friend of mine, Chris Fire, who's a theater critic here in Chicago, to see if if he knew ha- if there had been any rumblings about when they might be putting that up instead. And he said that he had ha- not heard anything, but he was sure um, early buzz was positive enough that he was sure it would come back Um especially now. Uh, I also, you know, don't know what is going to come of this, maybe nothing now, but he was also in the process of writing the musical version of The Nanny with Rachel Bloom. Um, I know they had made some progress on that. I just don't know how much um, and what that's going to look like now if it happens at all, but certainly there is still music coming from him. Well, that's, that's comforting to hear. Um, yeah. the, the other, before we move on to, I mean, we're going to talk crazy ex-girlfriend and I'm going to open the floor to you guys to talk about his bands. Cause I know nothing about them. Um, but I have seen that thing you do. I have not seen Josie and the Pussycat girl, uh, P- Pussycat girls, right? Josie and the Pussycats. Josie and the Pussycats. Pussycats. Cause I was going to Pussycat Dolls. I'm like, no, that's not right. Josie and the Pussycats. I have not seen it. I did not know it's like the first movie that uh, Telever's fave uh, Rosario Dawson was in, like, or like a very early, you know, one of her films. Um, but I did, you know, because of this, uh, listen to Pretend to Me Nice from that, which is just exactly, again, a little cream puff of a song, exactly what it needs to be. And then you find out that the, like the, the whole like thread of the movie is that it's like subliminal messaging and songs to get people to buy stuff and like kill people. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, this does sound like the exact kind of vapid pop song that would be a big hit, but for no reason. And, but also it's good enough that it, it works on its own, you know, like uh, clearly he had, a, he had more serious in musical uh, thoughts that he, I'm sure uh, explored with his bands and bridged that parody with, with a uh, much more uh, serious intention uh, with Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and not to mention his musical theater work, but also just like completely ridiculous. Is this a song that would we would create with our evil, you know, uh, villains trying to get everybody to buy Starbucks? Why, yes, it is. It's good stuff. Um, Noel, what, I, I, as I understand it, Allison, you have more of a connection to Fountains of Wayne and Noel, you have a more of a connection to Ivy. I have zero connection to either of these bands because when I listen to music, usually it's it's old dead German guys um, <laughs> with the occasional like, ooh, it's a British lady, what? Um, so so uh, for new listeners, I'm a classical musician. That's what that's about. Um, so so why don't you talk to me a bit about uh, about Ivy? What should I know about this band? 
Right. So Ivy was a, well, is, it's still around, but um, Adam Schlesinger was in it with uh, Dominique Duran and Andy Chase. And Chase and Duran, I think, are still like the band of Ivy, even though I don't think they've released an album in like almost a decade. Um, Their work is very, it's very pop. It's very like string heavy type stuff. I'm not good at talking about this kind of stuff, as you know. Um, but like their big album was Apartment Life, which got featured in a bunch of different movies. Um, so like, I think like, um, like it's definitely, there's something about Mary, I think. Um, and I think it's also in a couple of other songs, uh, a couple of other movies, but they, I think they got big with, um, there's something about Mary to a certain degree, but I really like Apartment Life. Um, it's just this very sort of cozy sort of um feel to it that you just kind of like it feels really breezy but it it there's a nice degree of like weight to everything which i think really kind of grabs a lot of schlesinger's whole thing anyway is like that there's this real feeling of i totally understand how all of this works and i can tweak it just a little bit and it feels really fresh and new. And I think that that comes through really on a lot of Ivy's stuff. Um, and he and Chase did most of the um, writing for the song, for the band. Um, and I think it's just, it's an album that I like to turn to both on like really sunny days, but also on like really like cloudy, rainy days because it works both, both instances. Um, but their, their whole vibe was just this kind of like low key pop sound that I just found really, really comforting and really, really good. And I was listening to Ivy before, like I knew who he was and, um, just like after this, I was just like, oh, right. He was in that band. That's right. Um, and then I was just like, but everyone's talking about Fountain of Wayne and I don't understand because I've never actually <laughs> listened to anything from Fountain of Wayne. So I, I've really appreciated like the chance and I've taken the chance to sort of like re-listen to a lot of, um, Ivy stuff this past week, actually. And I've really, I've really enjoyed revisiting because I used to listen to it a lot while I was working in an office, um, cause it was just like perfect pop music that I could listen to while I worked, which I really couldn't say about music with lyrics because I'm a writer and editor writing and hearing words in my brain made editing, especially really, really difficult. Um, but their music for whatever reason I could actually listen to and do my, my work pretty well, which is basically the highest compliment I can give them, um, as a band. So yeah, I was, I was very, very like, I'm very sad about all of this, but I'm very glad to have like a really great back catalog and some stuff to look forward to as well. Allison, uh, I know, you know, when, when news first broke that the Schlesinger had died, um, the first thing everybody was talking about was Fountains of Wayne. And I don't know that name of that band. Eventually somebody tweeted something about Stacy's mom. And I was like, Oh, that song. Okay. I, I, I know that song. And, um, and then later people were like, by the way, you know, that's also the, one of the crazy ex-girlfriend guys and i was like holy shit um so what mostly what this tells me is that uh i need to go back and re-listen to stacy's mom because i have a feeling it is a lot funnier 
than I gave it credit for. <laughs> I had a friend in college named Stacy, so she hated that song. <laughs> and <laughs> that was my main connection with it. Um, but knowing that, uh, I can just hear it in my head and go like, oh, this is satire. <laughs> Uh, that makes more sense. <laughs> that, but that is the extent right now of all I know of Fountains of Wayne. What can you tell me about about uh, Fountains of Wayne? You know, they uh, were just a really great power pop band. Um, every record of theirs has um, a couple of like what the kids would call absolute bangers on it, right? <laughs> like irrepressible hooks. Slap. They do slap. They are jams. Um, they're just sort of irrepressible hooks like you would expect from the guy who wrote the thing you do. Um, and often very funny. I, uh, a lot of people this week have been like, well, there's so much more to Adam Slush to this Stacey's mom. And that is absolutely true. Um, 100% there really is. Uh, but I don't appreciate necessarily all of the dunking on Stacey's mom. It is not my favorite Fountains of Wayne song, but it is very funny and I think if you once you know that Adam Schlesinger the songwriter was a really funny smart thoughtful guy all of a sudden the ridiculousness of the premise just becomes like it's not a novelty song but it is a comedy song um and all of the rhyme gets funnier it's just I encourage you to re-listen to Stacey's mom all of you with sort of a fresh set of ears um, and appreciate it as the sort of comedic gem that it is. Uh, if you're looking for somewhere to start, um, 2003's Welcome Interstate Managers is really wonderful. Uh, their self-titled debut, Fountains of Wayne from 1996, is also really great. Um, they released a record in 2011 called Sky Full of Holes that I'm pretty fond of. Uh, but there's not a bad one, right? Like, they're all just, it's really good um like cleaning your house music which i mean is a very high compliment yeah. it's impossible to listen to fountains of wayne and not be delighted even when things are a little bit more melancholy as was yeah. basically a requirement of pop in the the 90s and early 2000s um like you had to have a streak of melancholy or or get out um <laughs> so um, yeah, I highly encourage people to go seek them out if they have not. I have not been listening to it because it just kind of hurts. Um, I didn't really expect, well, I didn't expect it to happen. So I can't say I didn't expect it to hurt so much, but yeah, it's just, uh, stinks. Yeah. Do, do either of you have a connection with his other bands, Tinted Windows and, and Fever High? Uh, he was, he wrote songs for Fever High. I don't know if he, I don't know that he was in it, um, yeah, I mean, I don't. We're have, shaking our heads, listeners. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't have a connection with those. But again, for me, this is just more music that I will go explore. Yeah, and I'm I'm excited to to learn about. Um, let's move on to Crazy Ex Girlfriend a bit because obviously this is a very personal and specific show for Rachel Bloom and Aline Rosh McKenna, of course, is the, the co-showrunners and, and uh, well, Aline Rosh McKenna is the showrunner, but the co-creators and creative force behind it. That goes without saying. But when you talk about the music of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, you're talking, basically, you're talking about three people. You're talking about Rachel Bloom, you're talking about Jack Dolgan, and you're talking, uh, Dolgen, and you're talking about Adam Schlesinger. Um, now, I there are a few of the songs that I like I am under the understanding that they were more his 
you know, he inspired them or he had more of a creative force behind them. Ones people have been talking about are getting by um, as a big one. And then um, antidepressants are so not a big deal. And there's a few other ones. But I, my understanding is that most of this is process was very collaborative. But uh, Allison, I would imagine of the three of us, though, we are all stands that you are probably you are the most versed in this. Are there particular songs in the catalog from Crazy X that you connect more with him? Yeah, I mean, I think the important thing to know is um, uh, in terms of the history. So Adam was brought onto the show after they filmed the pilot for Showtime and um, obviously was already a name. Um, Aline tweeted this out this week, but uh, she was able to bring him in because he was her husband's roommate in college um, or when they were younger. Anyway, I'm not sure if it was in college. Uh, and she sort of thought, well, um, one of the things when we were talking that she said to me is she was talking to her husband about it and um, said, you know, I, I feel like it was sort of amazing that this show needed somebody who could do all kinds of things. And I happened to know a person who could do that. And her husband said, no, you happen to know the person who could do that because what it required was someone who could speak many musical languages who could collaborate with other songwriters, um, less experienced songwriters who could write comedy um, and who was a great producer because uh, Jack Dolgen, who was the executive music producer for the pilot, wanted to be in the writer's room. And he wouldn't, I mean, they did 157 songs on the show. He wouldn't have been able to. Um, which would have been another huge loss for the show because he was such an important part of that creative team. Um, so they all had multiple jobs, right? The writer, the songwriters room was essentially four people and that it was those three and Aline who was there as showrunner and would give her opinion and who occasionally contributed lyrically, but not very often. Um, and all of them had these other hats that they wore. So it was really up to Adam to sort of anchor them. Um, and every song in the show has his fingerprints on it in some way, uh, because once the song was written, that was just the beginning, right? Like if you think about something like, um, as an example, uh, I'm just a girl in love, right? The season two theme, um, was I'm sure written collaboratively because they all were. And sometimes it was two, they, they often all brainstormed, but sometimes two of them would go away and write. And uh, certainly it came from all three of them at the beginning, but um, sometimes two would go away and write. Sometimes it would be just one and then it would be collaborative from there. Um, but, you know, the songwriting process for that would end with the lyrics and the melody and the chords. And what is so memorable about that song is that da 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 da, right? Um, and that's the kind of stuff that I think really made some of the songs of the show so unforgettable. So, um, yes, What Let Be was all pretty much all Adam. Getting By was all Adam. Um, there were a couple others that I mean, many others that were all Adam. Um, but he also is responsible for a lot of the biggest hooks. He's let's generalize about men is him. Um, the hook for that song. He, when they were working on the first draft of Where's the Bathroom, they had uh, a bunch of the verses and they had the sort of like pattery music theater thing. Um, but they 
but Jack and Rachel kept saying, well, we have a hook. We have a hook. This is, it is, it feels pretty done. And he kept saying, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. It's not good enough. And kept pushing them to keep thinking of what they could add in. And at one point, um, he asked them like, well, what, when your parents come home, what do they say? And Rachel said, well, when my father-in-law comes in the house, he always says, where's the bathroom? And Adam was like, that's it. See, that, that is our hook. That's the thing that we need to keep returning to. Um, so even the songs that aren't like What'll It Be or Getting By um, are still very much a product of, uh, you know, like a bona fide musical genius who could take these songs they were all collaborating on and, and help to make them better in a way that I think made uh, Rachel and Jack both better songwriters. Um, they certainly, when I was talking to Jack, he said, well, no, he actually made me a worse songwriter because I just was able to rely on him always. And I could just trust on him to make it, trust in him to make it great. Um, but I am sure that they would both say they're better songwriters as a result. Um, Let's generalize about men is the one that I just like. I just couldn't conceive of that. Like it, that, that's one that like that thing you do. It just seems like it should always have existed. Like the hook of that song is so good and so catchy. It should always existed. Um, he and Jack also wrote the miracle of birth, um, which I think is hilarious. They asked all of the mothers uh, who were working on the show to tell them some things that they didn't know about pregnancy and about labor. And then they went away and wrote all of it into a song. Um, so yeah, like pretty much once you get past the pilot, pretty much all of the songs are at least in part Adam Schlesinger songs. Are there particulars that come to mind for you, Noel, that you connect with more with some distance from the show? I mean, like mainly what I think about with this um, and like his, like, touch on stuff is like yeah no getting by sure um but settle for me um you stupid bitch um george's turn (laughs) (laughs) i love george's turn it's 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 one of their best songs but i think that a lot of it like what we've sort of been talking about and what allison like really talked really has mentioned is the fact that he has an an ability that was really, really important for the show is you have to know all of this and you have to be able to do all of this. And the fact that they're able to do that crazy ex-girlfriend was able to hit all those different sort of genres of music, or sometimes just do a whole runner of musical theater in one episode. Um, And that it all worked in ways that you just can't expect to work on a weekly television series, I think is just phenomenal and just wild that he was able to put out and collaborate with everyone else to create those kinds of songs um, that were both really funny or really gut-wrenching or both at the same time. And I think that that ability is why something like that thing you do um, feels like you could hear it on the radio right after Let Me Hold Your Hand. Like there's the fact that that song written in the nineties feels like you should have just been able to listen to it in the late fifties, early sixties. And you just go, but how? And I think that that really speaks to everything that they did on crazy ex-girlfriends and just, it's just really phenomenal. And I just, it's just kind of overwhelming to think about it in terms of just that kind of output and that kind of deep, 
breadth of musical knowledge and being able to like switch your brain, especially for me as someone who can't carry a tune to save his life, uh, can't clap on beat. Um, but that ability to really almost seemingly intuitive, but obviously not intuitive because it just takes years upon years upon years of uh, being able to shift and move and figure out exactly what something needs. Um, especially in music, I think it's just deeply, deeply impressive, even down to his ability to get Christmas songs correct. Um, like on the Colbert Christmas um, stuff is like, particularly like another Christmas song is just really perfect and beautiful in that it's just a cash grab for a Christmas song. And A, acknowledging that in the lyrics, but B, that it's still a Christmas song you want to listen to, I think is just really, really pleasant and really, really great. Um, So I think that just his output of work is just phenomenal and his ability to turn all those songs into things that both sound like what they're referencing, but feel like they stand on their own without a reference point, I think is also just really, really significant. California Christmas time too. Mm-hmm. Which Another I, great, I, I love it. It's so fun. It's so fun. It's a great Christmas song. And it's in my head. It's going to be stuck in my head for a while now. And I'm okay with that. Oh, don't worry. Something else will be in your head in any second. There, there are so many. There are so many. <laughs> he really had a combination of you talking about, especially aping different styles of you have to know and respect the, the original style. You have to understand it at a deep level. You need to know and have a respect for how the form has changed since then, which things have been a response to that. It's one of the reasons that, like, for a brief tangent, the concept of the movie yesterday is incredibly interesting and the movie completely bungles it because the notion that you could take the Beatles out of world history and nothing else would change is ridiculous. Um, so knowing the style, like for that thing you do, knowing that that, that kind of 60s sound, uh, 50s sound or uh, late 50s, early 60s sound, knowing how sound progressed from there. And so therefore, which things you can't include or you shouldn't include because that puts it to, that makes it a response to that rather than mm-hmm. yeah. being truly of its time. Um, and, and even maybe it's like the really good, um, prop and set designers right if you're gonna do a movie set in a certain time period the cars aren't all from that year they're from like 10 years before eight years before like blending in all of that so it's that but then it's also the ability to 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 make it of its time but also current so that people now will appreciate it so the elements of music from that time period that have endured are reflected in your song but the parts of it that you know fell by the wayside are not and if you if you have an understanding of all of that, then congratulations, you're one of the few people who can write this kind of music. And to, to not just specialize in one area, but to be able to reach throughout genres, all the different genres that are reflected on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend feel, uh, at least to my ears, authentic and really uh, capture what they're going for. Um I think there aren't many people I could point to that are capable of that. You know, entertainingly enough, I would say Weird Al is another one. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, to, to do that and then do it on a TV budget and do it every week 
Never once am I listening to a Crazy Ex-Girlfriend song and going, if only they had more strings or oh, this is good, but like it really, it's too bad. Like, And that is a thing that as much as I love it comes up for me, even with shows like Steven Universe, even with shows that have music that I adore. It's like, oh, they did such a great job with this. Oh, I wish Ivan Sarashu actually could have a budget because they would do such great things. You know, it's it's knowing your parameters and being able to work within them um, and taking that uh, those limitations and making them part of what makes you successful versus what holds you back. So, yeah, it's it's an accomplishment to achieve in one of these areas to be able to do it in all of them um, is very rare. And these are the types of uh, musicians and artists that a lot of times don't get attention and don't get um, talked about. Um, because they're, they can be chameleons, um, depending on what the music needs them to be. And also it it takes so much to do that, that if you're trying to chase attention and chase fame, you're never going to put the work in (laughs) to do all of this stuff. So that wasn't what he was interested in. And that's why, uh, you know, people who just enjoyed his work and didn't dive further might not have known just how far he reached in different areas of music. I think, um, you know, a, a really great illustration of what you're talking about, Kate, is trapped in a car with someone you don't want to be trapped in a car with, mm-hmm. which is first, like, first of all, a really great comedy song, just from the title, like I just said the title and it sort of made me <laughs> smile because it's just trapped in a car with someone you don't want to be trapped in a car with. Like, it's just funny. Um, but it's a, it's a send up of a band that is, you know, hugely influential. And with stuff that they do that's not, especially in the early days, not easy to do. And it's every era, right? Like it's every era of the Beach Boys in one song and they all sound great and accurate and funny and smart. And Mm -hmm. it's not close to my favorite song from the show, but it's, so impressive and then you think about that which again like that thing you do is obviously very specifically of one era but if you weren't listening to the lyrics for I go to the zoo it could be on the radio right now I mean it still should it's very funny but take out what it is he goes to the zoo like if you take out the zoo part of it and it's just like I go to the club yeah just kind of wander around the club like all of a sudden it could just be a song that was top 40 right now um because it's so contemporary still it still feels of the moment and it was a couple years ago at this point yeah to me composing is really hard <laughs> you know like people every now and again would be like oh do you you're a musician do you write music i go no that's really hard of course not <laughs> there are whole other degrees for that <laughs> and that is a no this, I, I read the page and I do my best to make the page sound good. Um, yeah. So so it's just, it's a really, even just that musical part of it, right? And you're t- talking about the creative process on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend where um, they'd all come up and work on the lyrics together and then like the chord. Like there is such a gap from the melody and the lyrics and the chords to the finished song that I, I think um, it would be easy to not appreciate what that means. Like I... Somebody like Adam Schlesinger could take the same lyrics, the same melody, the same chords and make 10 different songs from it. Which I think is illustrated in a lot of the show's really smart reprises. 
Mm-hmm. You know, like the two versions of face your fears could not feel more different. And it's not just tone and lyrics. It's the way that they sound and the way they're produced. And um, yeah. And then yep. for a show that does things like, oh, God, I don't know. Um, we tap that ass. <laughs> <laughs> Which again, I'm just thinking about it, it's making me laugh. Could also do something like the darkness. Um mm-hmm. yeah. just incredibly impressive. And then that's to say nothing of what I think, and this is already starting to happen, the longevity of some of these songs in terms of saying things that need to be said for people who need to hear them. Um, and the impact that that could have. So obviously getting by, which has become sort of a coming out anthem, which is amazing. Um, but also antidepressants are so not a big deal, I think could have a, like a really big cultural impact. Um, there are some, let's generalize about men, obviously happened to come out um, in the early weeks of the Me Too movement. Um, and there are others, you know, the list goes on and who knows what will catch on as more and more people discover the show. But I'm an old person who has been wandering around on TikTok and the number of TikToks that are being made for 16 year olds who've never seen the show are lip syncing to the season one theme for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend or to Face Your Fears or to the Sexy Getting Ready song or to sex with a stranger it's really like those ideas are so good and specific that even removed from the context of the show i think that they can like hey six to stranger come to my place and i hope you're not a murderer that has legs that's gonna still feel true even if you never have any idea who rebecca bunch is um which i hope everybody does but um i think they are gifts that keep on giving and to that point as an example i have somebody right here on this podcast who discovered some new things about a song from the show recently when Kate Kulzik first encountered Ed Sheeran. Uh, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, Let's Have Intercourse made just a little bit more sense, didn't it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, having to, you know, obviously I'd heard of Ed Sheeran. I'm, I had heard his music around, but I hadn't examined it until one of my students wanted to learn one uh, perfect and so then I was transcribing and comparing uh, and, and trying to lock down the vocal inflections and the rhythms and all this and therefore being forced to internalize the lyrics. Uh, and yeah, yeah, that gave me new appreciation. And that's not <laughs> even the song that it's based on. You know, that's just like it's based on one of the other Ed Sheeran songs and music videos. But like, I was just like, yeah, OK, yeah, I liked that song before. I enjoyed it, but it was like, OK, I get it. And now I just like. I was, I was, I was wrong. <laughs> I was wrong in anything I ever said that was like, yeah, I'm not sure. I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I won't be back to normal till I see what your nipples look like. That's probably straightforward nipple. <laughs> Which I thought was just a funny line. And it is a funny line. And it's very in character for Nathaniel. It's like very, very in character. And also very in character for an Ed Sheeran song, I feel like, at this point. <laughs> Just like slightly, slightly twisted, but not very much. Um, and I have a feeling that uh that is not the first or that is not the last song of uh of his that I will 
come to some like get broaden my understanding of different types of music or hear a particular song then come back to one of his songs and go like oh yeah no i get that in a different different way now it's like the stacy's on oh that was satire they were not serious (laughs) i didn't i just figured that they were ridiculous and serious but i I was wrong and this is more interesting (laughs) so yeah i i look forward to my continuing journey with schlesinger's music and it's just absolutely gutting that we are not getting more beyond what was already in production. Um, do we have any final thoughts on Schlesinger or on his music or um, any, if, if we can command our audience to go <laughs> listen to one of his songs or, or one of his works, what, what, what comes to mind for you guys? Well, I mean, mainly I just want you to go watch Josie and the Pussycats right now. <laughs> like I, I need you to go do that, Kate. You should go do that because it's real good. <laughs> Latoya is never going to forgive you for not having seen that movie. Yeah, yeah, I better get on that before <laughs> next week. <laughs> oh man, um, Allison, any final thoughts? Um, you know, it's funny because I have, I, I'm real. First of all, I'm just really sad that when when the decade ended six years ago. Um, mm-hmm. way back in 2019, um, I thought, well, as I was writing like the last of my year end blurbs, I was like, well, this is probably the last thing I'm going to write about crazy ex-girlfriend for a while. Um, so a lot of the things that I had to think about and talk about quite often when I was, you know, on a podcast or was just, people were asking me what I was watching, whatever, I won't have to think about it anymore. Um, and that made me kind of sad, but now I sort of wish that was still true. Um, like I wish that I wasn't writing about crazy ex-girlfriend right now. Um, but one of those things that came up a lot is if you were going to try to convince someone to watch crazy ex-girlfriend with what, with one song, what would it be? Um, and it sort of depends on the person, but there are, you know, but there are a couple that I feel like are so good and so smart and so funny because that's the the real hook when you're trying to get somebody involved with the show you you've got to get them to know that it's funny um that i think do that that i think are if you can listen to it and more importantly watch it because the videos are such a huge part of the appeal of some of these songs um and not be like yeah okay i want to see more of this and i you know i don't know what to tell you so i guess like go seek out don't be a lawyer, you know, go seek out, um, uh, ping pong girl, um, seek out his status is preferred, which is like a definite mid tier crazy ex-girlfriend song that is so smart. The concept of that song is so smart and so dumb. Like it's just perfect. Or I love my daughter, but not in a creepy way like that. It's so good. It's, so good um maybe she's not such a heinous bitch after all a very funny song that in context is also incredibly upsetting and does all of these the math of love triangles and um the end of the movie oh my god the end of the movie another like very funny song that is deeply unsettling context um so yeah i guess i would say I don't know, find me on Twitter and ask me to pick the perfect crazy ex-girlfriend song for you. And I will. And then you can fall in love with this show. That's meant so much to me and um, to many other people. And 
yeah, I'm glad that I get to still have these songs in my life, I guess. Yeah, they're, they're definitely, I mean, there are certain ones that, like you guys have both said, that have reached out beyond, you know, into the wider world. And uh, I look forward to seeing how those shift and like, you know, we've mentioned it a bunch, but getting by is such a great song. I mean, aside from its message, aside from its lyrics, it's just a really good song. And I look forward to hearing that at Pride Parades Yeah, from now on. It's such, you know, I look forward to seeing what other songs, you know, break through and find new life. Because I think there's so many um, of his that could absolutely become like the next Rickroll song or something like that. <laughs> like could just like make it a whole new life. Um, there, There's plenty of material there so i encourage anyone who's listening to this who hasn't um to start exploring because you will find something that you appreciate um can i end with a an anecdote that i want to share yes please do okay um i was very very fortunate to be around for bits and pieces of the end of this show um i was on set on i think ultimately it was their second to last day um of filming, I was, uh, which was the day that they were filming 11 o'clock. Um, uh, I was there for the, one of the final rehearsals for their live show that was then aired on the CW. And then I was at the live show itself. And it was really wonderful to sort of watch them all interact and to watch those three songwriters in particular interact and sort of keep finding ways to add jokes and to add bits. And I watched them together come up with um the sexy getting medley song as a title for all of their sex songs in the show that was in the live show. um but a real highlight was during one of rachel's costume changes when they were filming the live show which was such a delight and so wonderful and they obviously all had such love for each other it really came across um somebody in the audience during a break Jack and Adam were just bantering and somebody yelled, Stacy's mom. And Adam went really, really fine. Okay, fine. And then he started playing it. Right. And Jack was like, obviously very amused and kind of thrilled and they were just doing their thing. And then all of a sudden you hear into a microphone, wait, 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 I'm coming. I'm coming. And Rachel (laughs) ran out on stage in her bra and a pair of leggings and like half of a costume because she couldn't not participate in a sing-along of Stacy's mom. And the three of them just all sang Stacy's mom together at the top of their lungs, jumping around on stage in the middle of this concert for no reason, because some kid went Stacy's mom. And they had this sort of celebration together. I, I have since read that in later shows when, she did her shows in London. They mashed up Stacy's mom and fuck me Ray Bradbury, which I think is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I guess I've been thinking about that a lot this week, watching those three people just have a really good time together um, with a really good pop song. And uh, I hope that, I don't know. I hope that other people can take as much joy in that song and the rest of his music as those three people did in that moment. Cause it was really special. Well, that's, Absolutely beautiful. And what a, what a tribute to the person that he was. So thank you so much, Allison, for coming on to talk with us. Thanks for having me guys. (sighs) 